didn't know there was this much green in the whole galaxy. To the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 159 and 160, which begin with the Mariner looking at a seagull, and end with the Enforcer and Gregor entering a hut. Our special guests today are Brad Mull from Jurassic Minutes and Courtney Colson from 60 Seconds to Comply. Welcome to both of you. It's such a pleasure to be here. I love Mad Max. I always wanted to talk about Mad Max. And uh, did you just say Waterworld? The <laughs> <laughs> old bait and switch. Yep. <laughs> oh, guys, great to be back. Good to have you back, Brad. I have brought you both on because, Brad, you are old hat when it comes to uh, worlds that may have been lost at some point and are being found by people flying through the air. That's happened a few times in the Jurassic Park movies. And Courtney, you've talked about Prometheus and Alien Covenant, places where people just start exploring all willy-nilly and things happen. So I figured this was a good fit for both of you. <laughs> I'm also doing Blade Runner and Tron, so world building, I guess, is something I, I've definitely covered a lot. Now, Brad, when was the first time you watched Waterworld and was it because I forced you to? No, it wasn't, uh, although the Ulysses cut may be your doing and <laughs> the extra time there required to watch it. But I think it was just another another movie in, that was rented. I couldn't even tell you when. Uh, it was probably after discovering Mad Max and that and going for that uh, that sort of post-apocalyptic. I'm pretty sure I've seen this and The Postman back-to-back, -back, so that might not have been the best weekend to be watching movies. <laughs> but, um, that's a different story. <laughs> oh, that's a rough go of things, both of those movies back-to-back. Courtney, you're not a big fan of this movie, if I recall correctly from our pre-recording conversation. It's not as bad as this reputation would have you believe, which is actually kind of disappointing. Because <laughs> I was going in there expecting, like, Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> nah, it's just, it's just okay, I guess. I first watched it for a bad movie night. My friends and I, every Sunday, we would just watch a heap of movies and talk over them. And, yeah, Waterworld's one of those ones that... I don't even think we found enough to goof on. It was just, yeah, okay. It's just okay, I guess. <laughs> Watching it this time around, at least I notice more. Because you can't take in details when you're just with a bunch of mates and you're bullshitting around. <laughs> and did you watch the Ulysses cut? No. No. <laughs> I value that extra hour of my life. I don't know what I'm going to do with that extra hour, but I'm going to savor it. <laughs> As I was going through the clip for today, there is a bit in the middle that is not included in the theatrical cut. So hopefully you've got your outlines that I've prepared for you handy so everyone can follow along together. As far as our clip for today is concerned, as I mentioned in the intro, we start off with the Mariner staring at a seagull. We talked a lot about seagulls at the tail end of last week's episode, but I just wanted to remind our listeners that seagulls don't travel very far away from the shore. We're talking about adult seagulls occasionally being seen about 100 miles away from shore, 
but the juveniles will never fly that far. They stick to land where they nest. But what if there is no land? What do they do then? Sitting on a barge. You know what? That's a really good point. I was going to say, well, if there's no land, then they would just die. But you're right. They would make their nests and whatnot on a barge. So why weren't there flocks of seagulls <laughs> hanging around the D's? May I suggest they're not around because they'll eat and captured and eaten. When it comes to food, I imagine that a seagull is better than starving. Certainly. I mean, birds are like all muscle, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you could die of rabbit starvation, as they call it, because it's all <laughs> protein, no fat. But uh, do all birds taste like chicken? I wonder. It's all white meat. I do kind of feel like all white meat tastes the same. Well, the question is, is a seagull more close to a chicken, or is it more close to a duck or a goose? Because a duck or a goose, that's more of a greasy consistency. It is. True. And that greasy consistency would actually be good for you, because you do need fat in your diet. Your yeah. body needs fat. Exactly. Maybe this is seaweed. Maybe you can live on carbohydrates. It's just seaweed. And what else? I would just relish the idea of being able to eat a seagull as revenge for all of the times that they've stolen my food. <laughs> <laughs> seagulls aren't as bad as magpies oh yeah i've heard about magpies in other parts of the world it's not really a thing here in the northeast united states but i hear people hate magpies oh they'll sweep you they have the worst noise ever i think that's probably the worst bird call seagulls on terms of annoying scale i'll give it like an eight but no nah, magpies that's 10 absolutely wow yeah, totally agree <laughs> Now, is that just an Australia thing? Probably. You both live, like, fairly close to the coasts. I mean, are seagulls a nuisance where you are, or is it just all some sort of poisonous variety of a wasp <laughs> the size of your face? When you go to the beach, obviously, <laughs> the, the seagulls, they are just swarms of them, all going for chips. All they want is the chips. But uh, otherwise, yeah, no, they're, they're not too much of a nuisance. Magpies are everywhere, and they want to mm. murder you. Yep. All right. Okay. They don't want chips. They want your eyes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think when the mariner woke up and saw the seagull, his first thought was, I want to eat that? Probably. I mean, that's it's good protein right there. Don't pass that up. The last time we saw anybody eat was the, oh, crap, what's it called? The whale fin? Mm-hmm. That was days ago. And not that long after the whale fin, their boat was destroyed. So it's not like there was food that they could have been eating off screen. Mm -hmm. They are starving. Yeah. I'll bet he wanted to eat the bird. In the seagull conversation last minutes, did you bring up the Simpson episode? Oh, where the crusty burger. Because that's always in my head. Yeah. That's how I know that fact that seagulls won't go that far from land unless they're gonna die. Oh yeah. It's come yes. up in an earlier episode and okay. I actually found the clip and I dropped it in the middle of the episode. Oh good. Okay. Okay. Don't ask me which number episode that was at this point, because that information <laughs> right out of my head. Last week was the first time seagulls ever came up, right? I mean, like, in the movie? No, there was a section of the novelization that I read where Helen made some sort of exclamation that involved gulls. Oh. And then that sparked off the conversation, oh, so I okay. had to go and find the clip. The cartoon that this scene reminds me of is probably a Looney Tunes cartoon where you've got one character looking at another character and then the character morphs into a piece of food, 
like a cooked chicken. And so oh. I can almost imagine the mariner looking at the seagull and watching it like shimmer morph into a cooked chicken on a that plate. That does sound like a Looney Tunes, like a Bugs Bunny type thing. He's either thinking that or he's thinking, what the hell is that thing? Right. Well, that's the other thing too. Do they even know what a bird is at this point? When was the last time they seen him? If he's only going down underwater, so he's not going to see birds <laughs> flying around down there, around Denver. Yeah, so he knows all about all sorts of fish and various mutated sea monsters, yeah. but as far as birds go... With all of the National Geographic magazines that he's holding yeah, on to, I'm sure at least a few birds you know, are in there. There really ought to be birds around the atolls as well. There should be more birds in this world. Yeah. Flying rats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So that's the thing with this story. It has so much interesting details, but I think my biggest issue is just how that world building is presented because tonally, in terms of pace, it's really uneven. It probably could have been a 90 minute movie very easily. <laughs> Definitely not three hours, but <laughs> watching it on my own, really paying attention, I went, oh, no, there is some cool stuff here. It's just, hmm, it's not coming together. And the Mariner is irredeemable. Um, Thank you. I reviewed Airwolf recently, and Stringfellow Hawk in the pilot, I thought was the worst protagonist I've ever seen in anything. Oh, no, 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 no. I was wrong. The Mariner is probably the most irredeemable. And that's possibly that I'll ask you that question, but I'll give my theory as to why this doesn't work and Mad Max does, is Max is the one good guy against a world descending into madness. The Mariner is just every other asshole in this world. He learns over that journey, but does he really? I'm totally on your side, Courtney. I think the Mariner is irredeemable, which is a hard sentiment to stick with because here at the end of the movie, yeah, he has done good things and he has risked mm. his life for another human being but he risks his life for one specific human being. He doesn't actually care about anybody else except Enola. And yeah. I'm just not sure that that's enough redemption to make him a good person. Yeah. Because you're a good yeah. person to one person. I will admit that it's kind of awkward just how hard, and this is me using internet slang, mm -hmm. Helen is simping for the Mariner. <laughs> yeah. It really does feel like this kind of Stockholm Syndrome thing. They're in this horrible situation where they're sticking together as a means of survival. So the relationship here, there's nothing genuine about it. Uh, actually, it reminds me to uh, call upon previous episode, Mad Max. The helicopter pilot, mm -hmm. uh, Bruce Spence, anyway. Him and that girl, when she wants to run away with Oh, him. yeah. What was her name? I think... It's not a real friendship. That's not a real connection. That's just convenience. It's convenience, yeah. yeah. Her name was just The Lusty Girl. That's right. We, the Lusty Girl. I think girl. we called her by her real, like, the actor's name, because yeah. we do not participate in that sort of objectification. Yeah, it's not great. So whenever George Miller chooses not to give his female characters names, we name them ourselves. Yeah. The actor's name. That's good. <laughs> So I think, yeah, we just called her by the actor's name. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we had the love scene, such as it was, <laughs> that I'm kind of okay with that because sex and intimacy doesn't always have to be about love and real connection and long-term commitment. It's okay mm. for it to be just about comfort. Right. Maybe Waterworld's problem is it gets too real 
with the realities of an apocalyptic situation where, yeah, people would be this feral and nasty. And as a movie watcher, I'm just not prepared for that. <laughs> it's a bit too real. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird direction to go, and you've mentioned it before, just with the whole Marinette character, and then, as you said, it being real life would be horrible, and numerous people say, no, nah, if the apocalypse happens, <laughs> bullet to the head, I'm not even going to deal with it. Yep. But we don't need to see the worst of what it could have been. Focus on the best, or uh, like Bad Max, just focus on the fuel. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I like this clip today so much, because it is a triumphant climax. We've defeated the bad guys. They're behind us. They're all drowned. The women and children on the Ds, they're at the bottom of the ocean. We don't have to mm -hmm. worry about them anymore. And we're mm -hmm. flying on with a clear conscience, knowing that genocide means nothing in the post-apocalypse. But here we are stumbling upon dry land. And I want to duck into the book because I love what we see in the movie where the Mariner you know, sits up a little bit. We see the top of the mountain coming through the clouds and then we descend down to see the valley. This is how Max Allen Collins describes it in the novelization. Several days later, food supplies running low, but buoyed by increasingly pleasant weather, the little group in the armor-plated balloon drifted into heavy cloud cover. The mariner, steering, guided the airboat down, and as the balloon emerged from the clouds, a tropical mirage displayed itself before them. Only it was not a mirage. It was an island, not an atoll, but land, dry land, dry land. The island was mostly a mountain, but it wasn't a stony, lifeless peak, not at all. This mist-hazed wonder glimmered with green, all shades of green, more shades of green than he ever knew existed. Seaweed wasn't like this. And there was a beach, a glowing white sand beach, and trees lined the beach. So many trees, so many kinds of trees, more trees than any picture in any magazine or book he'd ever seen. So many trees. <laughs> word count. Get that word count up. Let's have yeah. like a hundred words here. Keep going. Am I getting paid for the word? Okay. <laughs> this is written from the Mariner's point of view, right? Like there's mm -hmm. lots of thoughts that are running through the Mariner's head. How does he know this is tropical? I don't think he thinks that many words. I don't even know he's that many words. Yeah. I'm very much inclined to take that question, Julia, yeah. and just say, oh, he read it in a magazine. If he knows what the word pity is because he read it in a magazine, I can only imagine that there were passages that described tropical vistas. Okay. Yep. He also knows the next five hot trends of summer 2017. <laughs> he also knows how to do French manicures. Uh, yeah. This vista that we're looking at in the clip today is nothing short of the Waipio Valley on the island of Hawaii. It's on the northern coast just west of Honoka'a. If you're on the big island, you can go to Honoka'a and find Waipio Valley wagon tours, which offers mule-drawn wagon tours through the valley. The Waipo Valley is home to Halawi Falls, which are the highest waterfall in Hawaii at over 1,200 feet or 365 meters tall. My mother is going to tear you to shreds for your pronunciation. Okay. <laughs> Just real quick, side note to Julia's mom. I looked up all those pronunciations on YouTube, and if the white lady real estate agent on YouTube <laughs> pronounced those words wrong, then, you know... How much more natural can you get with pronunciation than a white lady real estate agent on YouTube? Come on. Yeah. 
Long story short, this area looks amazing, and I 100% want to visit it. Yeah. Definitely. They've really found a fantastic location here for this. Just those mountains, like over 2,000 feet off the ocean floor, like there's a reason they're sticking above the clouds. Um, and it's like a lot of the mountain ranges in Hawaii. It's just spectacular, and it's why we see them countlessly in the movies. Mm-hmm. As we are flying into the valley, I can't help but get flashbacks to the Jurassic Park movies because it seems that every time they arrive at one of those islands, they are doing it in the sky majestically, whether they're in a helicopter or parasailing or whatever they do in the third movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yep. Jurassic Park is filmed in Hawaii as well, yeah? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Of course. All five of them at this point. <laughs> It's either going to be Hawaii or New Zealand, it feels like. That's where everyone wants to film. If you need beautiful nature, that's your two choices. Well, it was supposed to be New Zealand originally for Jurassic Park. Production went down there and done their location scouts in New Zealand, but uh, ended up coming back to Hawaii for one reason or another. It would be pretty awkward to see a Jurassic Park movie and then in the background hear a PA trying to keep the sheep out of the shot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you also get the issue now that so many films are filming Jurassic Valley and that sort of thing. It's all blending. You see the location, you see those mountains, and you see it in King Kong, you see it in Jurassic Park, you see it in Godzilla. Oh, we won't mention that Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite glad I got these minutes, though, because this is something that I'm interested in in genre films in general, is that when you create this other scenario where... Humanity is so far removed from its original environment, if you will. The whole intention is to appreciate what we have in our world. And I have to say, you know, there's some moments where we go, oh, yeah, I guess they wouldn't be used to, like, a few minutes after this, they talk about land sickness. And going, oh, yeah, if your whole life is just rocking back and forth, stable land. It's like in Rick and Morty, where Morty stands on that platform that is yes, perfectly level. perfectly level, yeah. <laughs> no, take me back! Oh. <laughs> we get that earlier when he uh, jumps off the boat at the atoll, and then he, where he's climbing up these rocks, and you can see he's definitely uneasy about being on terra firma. Mm. It's that little way that Costner acts here that is one of the better things I like about his acting in this film, just, just that uneasiness about his leaving the water, he's sort of, tight in the throat and um, not too sure about himself. For someone like the Mariner who has lived his entire life out on the ocean and as an individual with gills, how irritating it must be to be around all of that vegetation with pollen and whatnot. I'm sure the rest of our party are going to experience their fair share of allergies, but I can only imagine having to deal with allergies in your regular human nostrils but also to have to deal with allergies in your fishman gills yeah <laughs> whatever respiratory systems going on back here yeah yeah also well i've got sugar and so i'm very aware of this just i need really high humidity i am always very dry he must be dealing with that too he's just never actually been fully dry and low humidity environment i also like everybody else They do seem more comfortable on land than the Mariner does, but they Mm. are still kind of awkward. And the way that they're like climbing over the rocks, it's very awkward. (laughs) And I can't tell if it's meant to convey that same sense of nothing's moving anymore or Mm. their unfamiliarity with 
climbing over rocks and so much uneven surface or just their wonder and confusion about the environment or is that the direction they were told by the director mm. hey just fumble over the rocks in the background <laughs> while you walk away we're gonna pay attention to the mariner but you guys just need to be in the back fumbling around a little bit as you're watching this shot of all of them stumbling over the rocks if you look in the background you can see Gregor's airship. I want to say crash landed on the rocks yeah. with the balloon bag all deflated on the ground. I don't imagine that Gregor was able to land this thing gracefully. <laughs> I don't think Gregor has ever done anything graceful in his entire life. <laughs> well, there's no sign that they're losing air or anything in the airship as we approach the island. It just cuts to it crashed on the rocks mm -hmm. another hundred meters we've seen that nice big clear opening in the valley that he could have set down that airship is the number one most valuable vehicle they've got they could load up with water and supplies and go out and find more people or explore the rest of the islands yet he just crashes into the rocks <laughs> yeah i'm a little worried that gregor's method for descending involves poking holes in the bag kind of like the guy <laughs> oh. who attached weather balloons to his you know barca lounger and then floated off into the air Took a BB gun so that he could pop balloons to descend. Yeah. I was going to say, he's just got a rifle and keeps blowing holes in it until it starts going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he is the guy from Air Bud. <laughs> the whole movie, I'm like, I've seen this guy. I've seen, I know I've seen this guy. Was he was in everything in my childhood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But as for the uh, awkwardness on the rocks, we don't really get an idea of the passage of time, how long they spend in there. We just get it in the novelization there that's seven days. Yes, you could stand up and stretch maybe in the uh sky boat but you wouldn't be able to walk around a lot especially if so many people on it now that here they are they get to stretch their legs finally after so long or maybe it was just a bit of a rough landing and they were uh, a little bit dazed but i can't remember the name of the character now the the lawman actually how he gets so far away in so short a time to be able to explore and come back as they're still venturing out from the crash ship yeah <laughs> it's amazing i imagine that most of them, their legs had fallen asleep because they'd been sitting for so long in such cramped conditions. And yeah, it's amazing how fast the Enforcer is able to get away from the skyboat, get inland, start exploring, <laughs> mm. find something. It seems a little reckless to, in a new environment where nothing is familiar, to run off alone. You don't know what's on that island. Oh, is there air? Rick, you don't know. You are saying several key words. <laughs> They have all been cooped up in that air balloon for days. He just wants to be alone. He's running away from them. Oh. He's trying to escape them just to have a peace and quiet. Imagine spending seven days in a small room with Enola. Ew. <laughs> like, please let me out of this thing. I will swim the rest of the way to dry land. So I actually do like the way they perform this, that, you know, it's something I've never thought of. Oh, yeah, if you've never been on land, how do you interact with it? What does it like to you? It's just this totally alien environment. And in the next minute, the way, I've got a blanket on her name now. Uh, Helen. Yeah, how she's interacting with that tree. It's just, <laughs> I've never seen someone interact with a tree like that. Okay, so Helen has seen at least one tree before because there was a tree on the atoll. But I will concede that the tree on the atoll did not have the same texture of bark yeah. that this tree has. It was a completely different kind of tree. Helen is definitely a tree hugger now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she loves that tree. Look at her. Loving that tree. <laughs> I will admit, the more I watched Helen 
interacting with that tree, the more I was like, what are you doing to that tree? It's a tree. Leave it alone. Do you remember that sketch turned movie of, oh, it was Molly Shannon from SNL, the Catholic schoolgirl? Oh. Superstar. Mary Catherine Gallagher. Yeah, Mary Catherine Gallagher. Well, they turned that sketch into a movie, and there was things with trees. Huh. She practiced making out with trees. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think that's what the log lady in Twin Peaks does. Yeah. You think maybe that's Mary Catherine Gallagher all grown up? Oh, yeah. 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 And just gone (laughs) real weird. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Checks out. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Do you know what the costumes are made of? Because I thought that was quite cool. Did we ever look up in production what their costumes were made of? No. No. Not at all. (laughs) I should have done that. I'm the costume person. What they're trying to make it look like is probably a kind of shark skin or something like that. It's mm-hmm. got that real sea creature texture to it. It might be some kind of waxed burlap, or it could actually be a leather that they've just embossed to have that kind of print on it. But I just think they're really cool, and it's what I could imagine people in this culture would wear. And I can't think of anything that really looks like that, especially those vertical striped pants. They're groovy. I dig right. it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, his pants really are quite something special. Yeah. Uh, A detail about his outfit that you can't quite see in this clip is that he has a wristwatch worn on his upper arm like a piece of jewelry. Very Egyptian style. But yeah, it's just I think it's a lady's wristwatch. It's small, almost dainty. That was something George Miller said. uh, He said it a few times that just even in an apocalypse, people are going to find ways to make jewelry make things beautiful and that's something i really love in costume and set design in the apocalypse if people can try to give it that distinct aesthetic you've got that kind of found look assembled look yeah i'm all over it yeah it's a great way just to show that individuality of the characters and that they just making their own clothes their own jewelry just standing out from everyone else yeah the worst thing a genre movie can do is just make it seem like these characters stand around waiting for the plot to happen. (laughs) You can clearly tell that the Mariner lives in a different culture, basically, than the Atollers, than the rest of the group. Their clothes are completely different. Yeah, they're more draped. I'm actually a little bummed out that the Mariner isn't wearing more old world clothing. I'm not saying he needs to wear the plastic raincoat from Blade Runner. (laughs) <laughs> but if there was any article of clothing that would survive a global flood, it would be a plastic raincoat. And if mm, he's diving true. down to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, why is he not dressed like Sean Connery and Zardos? <laughs> 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 Missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah. It's all about maneuverability. Why would you wear tight-fitting pants possibly made out of animal hide when you swim in? Do you know what that's like when it's drying? It's disgusting. <laughs> That's oh, horrible. that is. Yeah, he's essentially wearing leather pants to go swimming in. That seems what like an monster. awful, awful yeah. idea. And that's like his whole thing. Yeah, they've <laughs> shrunk and appeared to his skin. Yes. The second skin. He is the fish man. Mm-hmm. What's the deal with these fish men? I mean, are they their own race? Do they have their own tribes? Is that what the sequel was going to be? You know, he finds Atlantis, he finds these people. <laughs> I hope so. He needs people. Everybody needs people. People. Yeah. Everybody does. And people who need people are the luckiest people of all. Yeah. Unless mm. I was steered wrong by Barb Streisand. 
Nobody's ever <laughs> steered wrong by Barbara Streisand. <laughs> the best thing about Tiggers is <laughs> I'm the only one. But then, <laughs> then Tigger found out that maybe being alone is really lonely. And there was a whole movie about it. Yep. <laughs> I just remembered that. I think I saw that one with like six. <laughs> I'm looking that up now. What is that? <laughs> yeah, as far as we know, he's the only one. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why the Mariner is so uncomfortable on land. Brad, you mentioned earlier the Mariner putting his hand on his neck and massaging himself a little bit just because he was feeling so anxious. So I imagine that in his mind, he's like, everybody calls me the fish man. I am the fish man. What am I doing on land? It doesn't feel right. Plus, at this stage, too, he might be thinking that there's going to be more people. You've just gone from being around four people, and now there's going to be hundreds, possibly. That's an excellent point, because the last time he was around a big group, they tried to drown him in a cesspool. Mm. So if they stumble upon the natives, either he's going to have to fight them, (laughs) or some other fracas is going to get thrown down. Yeah, he has no reason to think that they won't try and kill him. That's all he's ever known, which does allow him some sympathy. The Mariner has a healthy amount of caution, and I would expect the Enforcer to have an equally appropriate amount of caution. But as we mentioned earlier, he is the, I'm going to leave these people behind for probably a moment of peace. I imagine that he was relishing the idea of being able to void his bowels without people staring at him while he's doing it what i was gonna say (laughs) (laughs) probably the first thing he did if this is mount everest how are they breathing how are they not freezing (laughs) yeah i've got some questions here Mm. Oh, there are so many Everest-related questions. Yeah, there are so many Everest-related questions. The breathing part, I'm not sure about. Because even if the water level of the Earth rises, does that change the layers of our atmosphere? Like, does the atmosphere get pushed out? Does it get condensed? Yeah, I'm not really sure. But the temperature I see warming up to a tolerable temperature. Yeah. But the atmosphere... I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the atmosphere would stay the same, but yeah, you're right. The, the temperature would, if the sea levels rose this much, then I guess, yeah, all ice is melted. It's, just, it's a, just a nice temperate condition all the way around the planet. But uh, no, you'd, you'd still not be able to breathe, so... Maybe that's why he's holding his throat. <laughs> you can't breathe. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait for Waterworld. Man, oh, what a great future. <laughs> <laughs> That could have made this film end a lot darker where he does come in here and we find that this village isn't abandoned, that there's in fact a tribe or people living here and they've got a shark or something strung up, another mutant man strung up and a leg missing. Because or... <laughs> they'd, they'd be fishing in the waters, you'd imagine. That would have been a great ending. Man shark. Just say, like, come to this island. It's just, yeah, King Shark from, from the comics just sitting on a throne. Yeah, I'm into it. Throne of human bones. <laughs> you get to the end of this movie and then you realize that this is actually all taking place in the DC universe and you have the actual character of King Shark from the Suicide <laughs> Squad movie or you have King Shark from the Harley Quinn comic voiced by Ron Funches, which granted the logistics it. of what I'm talking about would be really tricky in 1995. So maybe not <laughs> that, but it would be fun if I guess. <laughs> You know, we can do amazing things with technology. If we can 
completely replace Crystalia with Tignataro in Army of mm. the Dead, then we can throw King Shark from Suicide Squad into the end of Waterworld. Yes, please. <laughs> Absolutely. So according to NASA, if all glaciers and ice sheets melted, global sea levels would rise by more than 195 feet or 60 meters. So mm -hmm. I don't have anything to compare that to, but I don't think Mount Everest is, is 60 meters tall. <laughs> no. No. You're a couple thousand meters short. Yeah, yeah. There, there's not enough water on this planet in any form to come anywhere close no. to Waterworld. <laughs> you messed up, Waterworld. Try yeah. again. <laughs> you done goofed. <laughs> All just to have those opening credits of the world disappearing in the, the Universal logo. That's the, that They started with that and they had to try and make a movie around it. It didn't work. Yeah. Honestly, that was such a good start to the movie, though. Yeah. If I, that's what happened, I am on board. It's so simple. It's like Universal and then just have the water level rise. Yeah. We were telling Courtney earlier about, oh, this is all Mount Everest and it's the Planet of the Apes moment. Technically, over the course of this film, we've had so many clues that this actually is our Earth that every time they have one of these, oh my God, it was Earth all along moments, like with the sinking of the Exxon Valdez. Yeah. Like, yeah. they're trying to make it feel momentous and it never is mm. because from minute one, they explained, oh no, no, it's Earth. Yeah. It's our future. The very first visual we get is, this is Earth. This is Earth flooded. The future. Welcome to Oh, yeah. I didn't even know that was supposed to be a mystery. I thought it's just, yeah, the polar ice caps have melted, I think is the, the first line, covering the Earth with water. Yeah. Yeah. They keep doing that throughout the movie, where they give you a reveal that feels like it's supposed to be interesting, but you already knew that. So maybe that's why they took the Everest moment out. Yeah, like, maybe. We keep doing this to people. We don't need this in here. It's is it tiring at this point? It kind of feels like it. It is. The pacing and the tone and how they deliver that information. I think it's a great concept. I really like it, but it needed a rewrite. I think there was at least one rewrite needed to really make this punchier. And you know, the thing with Mad Max, of course, being the the best post-apocalyptic movie. Well, apocalyptic and then post-apocalyptic movie is that. It's not trying to have that big real, like, you know, this is the real world and it's showing you the horrors of what that could be. Blade Runner is another one where it's like, yeah, this could happen. Do you want this to happen? Mm. Where Waterworld seems to be like, oh, is it Earth? Is it not? A you said it was Earth. Like, what? It's like a bad magician trying to prestige the audience multiple times after only doing one illusion. Yes. <laughs> I think a way around it is... And this would have upped the budget even more. Filming on the ocean seems like a, a nightmare. But yeah, if the ichthyosapiens, Homo ichthyus, if you will, didn't look human. So they did look like ape sapien or some kind of alien. So then you're like, so is this Earth? What? Where are we? And then you have your, uh, you maniacs, you blew it all up moment at the end. I mean, they remember the, the, the old world. We mm -hmm. don't know how long it was, but they remember the old world. What the hell is this script? Who approved this? <laughs> <laughs> it's worse than Prometheus. I mean, at least with Prometheus, they're like, we're going to explain this very technical, dangerous mission to you now after you've been in cryosleep and you're halfway across the galaxy. It's been like eight years. It's really hard to turn back now if you change your mind. And <laughs> yeah, at least I understand, you know, it's a whole NDA thing and, uh, you know, there was, there was corporate competition. Here, I, I got nothing. I 
I I could defend Prometheus. I don't know if I can I can come up with an explanation for Waterworld. <laughs> I remember watching Prometheus. I'm pretty sure we saw it in the theaters, and it always rubbed me wrong how they did our girl Charlize Theron dirty by making her run in a straight line. Oh my god, she's the best character. I've never seen Prometheus. You've never did I? No. Did we not see it in the theater together? No, not together. It's good. I love it. I mean, I know it's not perfect, but I love it. What year did it come out? 2012. 2012. Yeah. July. Yeah, wasn't that wasn't me. Huh. It's been uh. your other wife that you went to see the movie oh. with. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> I'm still convinced she's an android. <laughs> yeah, I love it because I even wrote, uh, I rewrote a scene and I read it in my podcast. I was like, you know what? I'm sick of Vickers being done dirty, so I'm just going to fix the movie now. That's what happens when you do, you know, like 110 plus episodes. You, you take matters into your own hands. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's what you should do with uh, when you get to the end of Waterworld. Take matters into your own hands. Yeah. Just oh, yeah. Do we a love rewrite. rewriting. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Would the ending of this movie have been better if they had stumbled upon Dryland and this movie was secret sequel to a Jurassic Park film where suddenly you've got the little compies? Yes. Coming out of the woods to attack Enola. Brad, thoughts? Apart from the 500 years in the future or whatever we are here, it could be a side adventure. And yes, at the end of the movie, they've stumbled onto Sauna or Nublar, whichever. Uh, take your pick. It does feel like there needs to be some kind of twist ending. Like, yeah, there's dinosaurs, there's apes, there's something. There's supposed to be mm. something on the island. I feel like that's, that's how this story's supposed to work. But the scriptwriter just done goofed and forgot to add that twist. Or there was going to be Mount Everest, but that's not a that's not a twist. That's just logic. Yeah, it's just too clean. Greg is there, fistfuls of water in his mouth after only surviving on hydro all his life, and um, and uh, Helen hugging the tree like there's no snake in the tree or spiders. Or maybe the trees <laughs> evolve. The trees come to life. Something you need a twist. Nature's taken, yeah, this little bit of dry land, nature's taken over and it's in control, not uh, not the two humans that were left. And They could have sat there and all of a sudden you hear the drums and they go have a look and here's a big wall at the end of the valley and all of a sudden we're on Skull Island. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, so much potential wasted. <laughs> exactly, squandered. As we are moving inland from the beach, I do want to duck back into the book. As we said multiple times, the Mariner is feeling uneasy, and Helen, the Enforcer, and Gregor stumble upon a bunch of these little huts. And yet there was, to the Mariner, something unsettling about the paradise they'd found unfolding before them. The others, Gregor, Enola, Helen, even the hard-bitten Enforcer, and never mind how tired they were from the journey, and no matter how haggard they might have looked or felt, were mesmerized. No whoops of joy, no land ho, as sailors were said to say in the ancient land days. No tears, not even smiles. These were the faces of sailors come home from the sea. But the sailor who brought them there, even as he drank in the splendor of the shimmering vista before him, knew that his home was the sea. And it reminds me of that song Brandy by Looking Glass. This large bell in the middle of the camp here, do we see more of that later or is this the only shot of that we get? I believe this is the only shot that we get. And this bell specifically has frustrated me over the last several days because as much as I type into Google Tibetan bell whatevers, 
no matter which direction I come at it from, I can never find anything that looks just like the bell that they've set up here in this village set. Oh. When you think about it, they're up on Mount Everest. This is a typically Buddhist area high up there in the mountains in Tibet. So it would make sense if there were some ritual bells or some meditative guidance tools on there. And yet I was not able to find anything definitive about, oh yeah, that's what that is. And it frustrated me so much because I hate not knowing. (laughs) But you tried and that counts for a lot. Maybe the props department did make a bell, but why when you could just get one anywhere? Okay, is this one bell or two? This is just one bell. Really? Because it kind of looks like two to me, but it doesn't really matter. Just got a big old flat clapper on the bottom. Okay. Mm. was probably a, a found object. It was probably no longer on a frame. I would imagine after this long, any wooden frame that it was on would have broken down. So they would have needed to find this bell and then reframe it. Mm -hmm. Because the frame, as we see it, looks in excellent condition. It's pretty solid. It's not even particularly overgrown. So it had to have been relatively recently, in the last, I don't know, maybe 100, 200 years, put in that frame, but also recently taken care of. Yeah. Based on how much growth is on it, I would say it's been taken care of within months. And it does look quite Tibetan, but that's... Yeah. That's what I see when I look at it. I imagine Kevin Reynolds going to the set designer, waving his hand about, using the phrase vaguely Asian, (laughs) just letting them have at it. (laughs) That's probably true. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. 95, what else, what other movies did Universal do that this has just been pulled out of the prop warehouse? (laughs) Very good point. So who would win in a fight? Enola or the wild child in Mad Max 2? Still boomerang. <laughs> I was about to say. Yeah, if he gets to keep his boomerang. Mm, yeah, that, that boomerang is uh, deadly. Yeah, mm. Anola's typical possessions don't include any weapons, just crayons. Yeah, although if she gets a crayon up the feral child's nose, that could <laughs> really throw him off. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, the, I think the feral child will definitely win. Mm, he's very athletic. And Nola seems like she's quite like strong. She's very sturdy. Low center of gravity. <laughs> She's been taken care of her whole life. I think there may have been some bullying on the atoll because she's different and she's not one of them. But on the whole, I think Helen has really been there to defend her and to protect her. So, yeah, yeah, Enola is strong. She's solid and she has a very strong personality. I usually don't like using that phrase, but it fits with her. Like, she is very sure of herself. And willing to put herself out there. Yeah. I imagine that Enola could probably pacify the feral child by humming happy birthday or something like that. (laughs) Oh, true, yeah. Um, That's that's true. But as soon as he throws that boomerang, she's done for. It's game over, man. (laughs) It's game over. (laughs) Also, what's the battlefield look like? Is it one-on-one? Is it a game of Pictionary? I think it has to be like a like a like a cage match, man. Just they, oh, yeah. they're locked in, no we weapons. Put them in the Thunderdome. Go. Yeah, yeah. Thunderdome. Oh, yeah, I go. agree. I agree. Because yep. you can't mesh their respective landscapes. Mm. They're opposite of each other. Mm-hmm. So yeah. take them both like, out of their landscape, the put them in the Thunderdome. Exactly. It's... I think if you insist on making them fight, I think the feral child is gonna win. But I agree that Enola has the capability of making him her friend. <laughs> Yes. Because that's what she does. 
True. She turns monsters into friends. If she yeah. can befriend the Mariner, she can befriend the Feral Kid. <laughs> I think she's great. Actually, I do like her. I was saying before, kid characters it can be real hit and miss. You know, you could either end up with a, a Wesley Crusher or a Feral <laughs> Boy. He's great. Yeah. And they're both disadvantaged because neither of them can swim. So maybe we put them like in a pool. Yeah. So they're both Little fighting for fight. their life for themselves and then against each other as well. Yeah. And we can give them inflatable wing floaties. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Although I do like the visual of putting them on the bungee cords. Yes. And making them bounce around the uh, Thunderdome. Although if you do yes. that, they're not going to fight. They're just going to have fun because they're kids. Yeah. You get like a little slap fight going. Why are they going to fight? They're just adorable. Let them have fun. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be a novelty fight for sure. Right. A lot more of a novelty fight than our usual go-to who would win of Smokers versus Warboys. But here at the end of the clip, one of the last images we see is everyone running towards these huts. And Helen and Enola go to the far hut, but Gregor and the Enforcer decide to enter the nearer of the two huts. And in the last two and a half seconds, we see them entering that hut. Julia, before we started recording you said that this clip is a bit of a tease oh yeah watching this in preparation i just watch it over and over and over again several times and i really just wanted to keep watching the movie it hooked me that we have come upon the goal of the entire movie we have found dry land but there's something more to learn and we're like about to learn something interesting and it cuts off mm -hmm. and it was painful I hate where these minutes end. Because we're so close. Because we're so close. Oh, yeah. That happens to, that's happened to me many times where I, especially when I have a guest on, and we all want to talk about that thing hap that happens in the next minute. It's like, nope. No, we got to focus on this one. <laughs> I resisted the urge to just jump to the file for the next two minutes and just keep watching the movie. But I didn't. So... It's been so long since I've seen the movie. I honestly don't know what happens next. I don't remember. Yeah. And it's especially tantalizing when you consider that beginning with next week's minute, there's only 10 minutes left in actual movie. Yep, so close. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And up until this point, we've been trying to find dry land and that's the end goal. There's nothing on the table about you're going to find Anola's home or civilization. You're just finding dry land and here this new mystery is about to uh, present itself. Oh, no, mm -hmm. it's basically like a dog tag. Like, if you find this child, please return them to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this does feel a little Return of the King-esque, where their whole journey, they've been trying to throw the ring into Mount Doom. Mount Doom. Yep. Cool. And so they do that. It's like, okay, cool. They did the thing they were supposed to do. Now the movie's over. And it so isn't. Mm. There's like... 10 more endings and it's a little bit the same thing here where we accomplished the goal we found dry land but we're not done yet but we're so close we're so close it's an uncomfortable thing in quest stories i find where the whole thing is about getting to that goal this one goal it's it's very unique as you say genre in that sense where it is there's a, there's a very specific ending in mind whereas most other genres don't. Maybe murder mysteries, probably, but otherwise, I find that in a lot of quests, movies, or stories, the problem is, okay, so now we've gotten here, 
And some writers want to go, okay, well, this is what this goal has accomplished. This is what this new land or whatever has in store for these characters. But in terms of pace, it never works. If you keep drawing that out, like The Return of the King, we're going, oh, now we're ready to go. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> no, I kind of go, oh, no, there's another one. Um, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I do want to see where these characters go. I did, especially with All the Rings. You know, I spent what, three years or so with these characters. Yeah, I want to see them happy and how they live their lives afterwards. But structurally, this is this is falling apart. It's an area of movie making that I find that most of those Jurassic Park movies, they don't have that problem. They get off the island and they fly away and that's it. Mm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> they could have simply just had a helicopter shot pulling back as they're climbing up the rocks and that's that's it. We found dry land. That's... That's yeah. the goal. And of course, we'd be wanting, oh, but what's what's here? And yeah, they do that and it might not pay out. Well, that's essentially what they did in the theatrical version. There's so much that they just don't include in the theatrical cut. So it's, they find dry land, Mariner doesn't like it, he gets on a boat, he sails away, and that's it. We don't get Helen giving him a name. We don't get Helen and Enola finding out it was Everest. We don't get extra stuff involving the village here. So that's probably the better thing the theatrical cut did as far as pacing is concerned. But there's so many juicy little tidbits that I love in the extended edition. So I'm glad we are watching it for this. Yeah, I'm torn between getting to learn more about this world and Anola's history and whatnot and having that more succinct, grand ending we're just ravenous for world building yeah yes, yes. yes building um, world i want them both <laughs> brad do you remember ocean girl yes i do i just remembered that because i went hang on she looks like an extra from from Waterworld. i looked it up and that came out in 1994 <laughs> so oh, it predates Waterworld. so maybe say they stole it from from us from the australians <laughs> we came up with the idea first so what's, kind of, what's yeah, this movie? So Ocean Girl is a really great TV series that I loved as a child. Uh-huh. And uh, it's about this girl. She's basically from Atlantis, from this ocean civilization. And she hangs out with these, uh, it's like, I like marine biologists or whatever. And oh, here's a summary. Set against the beauty of far north Queensland, Ocean Girl is a story of Nary mysterious young girl from the ocean who is discovered by young inhabitants of an underwater research colony. There you go. Because I think they filmed a lot of it at SeaWorld. This show had four seasons and 78 episodes. Wow. That is a lot. I kind of want to watch it again. (laughs) (laughs) Nostalgic trip. I know, I'm like, that sounds interesting. I had such a crush on her. (laughs) It's a shame they didn't reach that magic 100 episode syndication number. Because then you could have just sold it anywhere. That's the only... Oh, she was in Round the Twist, but that was the only thing she was in, other than that. There's a lot of local shows like that, that people come in, do their episodes, and that's it, and never see them again. Yeah. Interesting. So, the main oh. actress of that show, mm-hmm. Marzena Godecki, she was mm-hmm. born in Poland, and then her family moved to Australia. So, her situation is very similar to Mel Gibson, except he was born in America oh, I... and then moved to Australia. Yeah. Him and Nicole Kidman have really weird accents now. They're just like half American, <laughs> half Australian. What? It's very confusing. Well, I wonder if that's just a thing with actors where they've done it for so long they just can't remember what their original accent was. 
they've tried so many. Oh yeah, Madonna's like that. Yes, yeah, she yeah, goes through she's her doing British the phases. Same thing. Yeah, I remember Rick when we were back when we were still watching Mad Max. We saw an interview with Mel Gibson. The interview was in Australia, and he like turned his accent back on. <laughs> like I have never heard him speak so Australian since Mad Max than in that interview. Oh, uh, Gary Oldman apparently had to have speech therapy because he forgot how to speak British. <laughs> oh, jeez. No. He just got into a habit of speaking American yeah. and couldn't. I listen to interviews now because I've heard him talk about that. Now every time I listen to interviews, I go, oh, yeah, he's slipping into the American pronunciation. Yep. <laughs> I've noticed I do that a little bit. That happens a lot with the American Southern accent. Mm. It's so easy to do. People move north and south all the time. And so there's a lot of people with like half southern accents and half northern accents Mm -hmm. who just slip back and forth depending on who they're around. Yeah. Yeah. At one point, I was really doing a good job of trying to just have a non-region specific American accent. But now that I've lived back in New England for so long, I can't get away from it. You do a pretty good job until you get around people who have strong Boston accents and then you slip into your Boston. Okay, that's a personal curse of mine that if I'm around someone (laughs) with an accent for long enough, I'll start adopting that accent and that gets me into trouble sometimes. Yes. Yeah, which I think a lot of people do. A lot of people do that. They speak (laughs) like the people they're speaking to. The Boston accent or that sort of, yeah, Eastern American, North Eastern American those accents have a lot in common with the Australian accent. It's very strange, <laughs> it, just especially in terms of how the vowels are pronounced and stuff. So for me to go from that to, I don't know, like a kind of Harley Quinn accent, it's very easy. There's not a lot of difference. <laughs> Here at the end of the episode, it's always good when drifters meet out on the open ocean that something be exchanged. Brad and Courtney, could you let our listeners know where they can find more of your projects on the internet? Doing Jurassic Minutes, covering the Jurassic World movies at the moment, one minute at a time. So we check us out on the socials at Jurassic Minutes. Excellent. And I see there's dinosaurs on your shelf behind you there. So. <laughs> it's my it's my kids. It's my boys' room. It's not mine. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> For me, you can find me at traviandesigns.com, T-R-A-V-A-N. That's probably going to run through my brain as I die. It's probably going to be the last. So I've said it so many times. <laughs> And it's patreon.com slash designs. That's where you can find advanced episodes of Covenant Minute and also super advanced episodes of Legacy Minute and the Nexus Minute, which is where I'm covering both Blade Runners and the book Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep. And also, if you like Robocop, everybody loves Robocop. So Who doesn't? You can also listen to me on 60 Seconds to Comply. That's on YouTube. That's wherever all podcasts are found. And I also have a YouTube channel, just under my name, Courtney Colson, where I talk about being a female-to-male-to-female detransitioner. I think that's everything. (laughs) It's not everything, but it's everything that's relevant. (laughs) Our listeners have their work cut out for them. As for this show, please come back next week. We will see Gregor and the Enforcer discover the source of Enola's tattoo. Enola will open a music box, and the Mariner will feel an overwhelming urge to get the hell out of Dodge. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. 
Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 80. We'll see you next time.